What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Today's episode features Max Kaiser and Stacey Herbert. They've been around in Bitcoin for a long time, buying Bitcoin under $10, and then going around the world, everywhere, any country you could think of, and explaining the benefits of the digital currency. Today, we talk about everything from El Salvador to other emerging nations. We talk about the problems in the legacy financial markets, and we also talk about all sorts of interesting topics like will Texas and Florida ultimately try to leave the United States. This episode was a lot of fun, and I hope that you enjoy it. Before we get into this episode, I'd like to tell you about our sponsors. First up is LMAX Digital. They're the number one institutional crypto exchange, and they offer clients the deepest pool of crypto liquidity on the planet which is underscored by a 100% uptime track record through volatility spikes. Leveraging LMAX Group's liquidity relationships and ultra-low latency technology, LMAX Digital is the market-leading solution for institutional crypto trading and custodial services. They feature a central limit order book, streaming spot Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and Bitcoin Cash, and it's all paired with US dollars, Euro, and Yen. LMAX Digital, you may have never heard of them, but that's because you're not an institution. They have no retail clients, just institutions. LMAX Digital. They're secure, they're liquid, and they're trusted. Learn more at lmaxdigital.com slash pomp. Again, lmaxdigital.com slash pomp. Next up is Compass Mining. Compass Mining is the world's largest marketplace for mining hardware and hosting. With Compass, everyone can mine Bitcoin. Their team makes it easy to start mining wherever you want, at home or in one of their 23 hosting facilities around the world. Through the Compass Marketplace, retail miners can access mining hardware with similar prices and purchase plans as the world's largest mining companies. Compass miners own their machines, they choose whatever mining pool they want, and they mine directly to their own wallet. Miners who don't want to host their machines can order ASICs directly to their doorstep as well. Simple and low-cost hosting agreements coupled with best-in-class customer service are the reasons why Compass is the simplest and most popular way to mine Bitcoin. Start your own Bitcoin mining today by visiting compassmining.io. Again, start mining Bitcoin today by visiting compassmining.io. All right, let's get in this episode with Max and Stacy. I hope you guys enjoy this one. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right. <laughs> a very special treat for everyone. We have Max and Stacy both here in studio. How hey. are how are both of Mom, you? What up? I'm Joe, doing great. John. Y'all getting married, I see. Well, I mean, when did you plan. two get? When did you two get married? Uh, about six years. <laughs> <laughs> We're off to a fast start. <laughs> hey, I brought a business jacket because I thought this was the best business show. But yeah. everybody here is in like t-shirts and sweatshirts, so I was deceived. It was false advertising. Well, it's not because, a business show. Well, here, here's the uh, the whole key to it is that most people go on business shows and they feel like the clothes they wear signal more about their intelligence than the ideas they bring. Sure. Right? But you two show up and I'm like, oh, they got great clothes and great ideas. So it's perfect. Yeah, yeah. There's also no pizza in the pizza box. <laughs> <laughs> Max and Stacy got here a few minutes early and I can see they've raided the entire office. <laughs> for, I was looking for, for food. <laughs> uh, we came for the swag. All right. What uh? What, what have you two been up to? I want to first. Two thousand and three is when we met Pomp. Two thousand and three. He just got, remembered. You know, <laughs> we got Let's go back uh, to that one. You know, 
after that. We got married three times, actually. Three and times? Why three times? We just love each other so much. We like <laughs> to get no, married. It's, it's, get, it was more like a silver alert. We weren't sure. Did we get married already? Are we married? And then, uh, <laughs> All right. You guys recently went to El Salvador. I want to start there. Yeah. Uh, and you've got the El Salvador hat on there. Yeah. Walk me through your experience going to the country. Well, there, you know, since the early days, uh, Pomp, we've been talking about the potential for Bitcoin to be adopted by a country and become legal tender, to become a Bitcoin citadel or become a beacon for the world, a new expression of freedom for the world. And, uh, you know, Tour Demeester was on my show seven years ago and we were talking about this. And also uh, a few other folks have been talking about this. No country yet has pulled the trigger. No one's had the, the, the balls to do it yet. Uh, so uh, President Bukele just, you know, he said, you know what, uh, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make Bitcoin legal tender. So we went there and the p- place is uh, being transformed by, by Bitcoin. So it started on Bitcoin Beach, uh, but that vibe is spreading everywhere. There's hope everywhere. GDP in the country looks like it's going to do, they have their best print uh, since the early 90s. You're talking 10% this year, probably a lot higher next year. Uh, I'm going to go there. We're going to go there. Uh, we're going to become citizens there. And uh, my my objective is to help transform uh, El Salvador into the Singapore of Central America. So that means bringing in, doing the startups, looking at startups. We've been investing in Bitcoin startups uh, since 2013, uh, looking at wealth management tools, investment banking, uh, everything across the board. Because this is going to be, a, it's just a huge growth story. Um, so everyone there was just on a, it's a great town. So El Zante is the beach town, Bitcoin Beach. And I got my first surfing lesson. Are you and good? I'll be needing some additional surfing. Lessons. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, but the waves, the volcano, the jungle, the energy, the people, uh, it's 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 fantastic. It's a classic turnaround story. It's it's a it's an emerging market story. Um, the Bitcoin bond is a huge part of that story, and this is a very exciting piece piece of the puzzle. Okay, so I want to start first, maybe Stacey, You can talk about uh, the leadership, right? In terms of uh, somebody has to pull the trigger. Somebody has to be the one to say, okay, we're going to do this. What was your read on Bukele, the government, and like how important they are to get it started? And then how important is it that they continue to push this versus no? Once you get started, then the people kind of take over, and, and the government may not be as important in the future. So when we went to El Zante, that's the only place I've ever been in all these years in Bitcoin that is hyper Bitcoinized. So it is Bitcoin, hyper Bitcoinized. And I think it was uh, from the bottom up. I think Bukele is a startup party in a two party country and they won in a landslide. They created this party out of nowhere and, um, you know, started this new revolution there. And as Max said, we interviewed Tur Demeester back in 2014, February 2014. And Max and Tur were speaking about this, that which would be the first country to hyper-Bitcoinize. And what they determined was that it would be a small country. It would be a nimble country. And it would have economic freedom. Now, the economic freedom seems to be following. If you look at Bukele on Twitter, if you look at him responding to Bitcoiners, uh, when we went there for the uh, Bitcoin conference, LaBitConf, 
there were, uh, for example, some people had problems because of the PCR tests and all the um, COVID restrictions, which then he removed because all these Bitcoiners were complaining about it. So I think he seems to be responsive to the people, including now Bitcoin, because it's the first hyper Bitcoinized nation. So, you know, we always discuss the fact that whenever like whenever we travel around the world, we feel like Bitcoiners first and then American second and now Salvadoran, you know, we feel Bitcoiners and like you've been there, right? Like, you know how it is to be a Bitcoiner, right? Like you feel so much more in common with a Bitcoiner than with any other thing, male, American, you know, whatever you're New Yorker, you know, you feel like a Bitcoiner and, and it feels like a Bitcoin nation. Now, I didn't, you know, there were some people who were saying like, oh, he's uh, forcing this onto the population. But uh, when you're in San Salvador, there weren't that many people that took Bitcoin. So our hotel didn't, the restaurants didn't. So we were um, free to not <laughs> use Bitcoin. So mm-hmm. nobody asked for, we, we did ask a few places if they accepted Bitcoin. But El Zante is hyper Bitcoinized and it's the first time I've ever actually had to use and been able to use lightning in the real world. It was lightning payments everywhere. Everybody knew how to use it down there. What was the uh, comparison to if you were, you know, here in Miami and you go to a coffee shop, you go to dinner and et cetera, and the payment services versus there, was it, um, did it fulfill the promise? I think that a lot of people have of like, it is better. Or did you feel like there was still some user experience kind of snafus or, or obstacles or friction? Like just talk to me about the actual experience. I didn't, I didn't have any snafus. Like there was a guy riding his little, um, moped, sold us some pupusas and, uh, just showed his phone paid for it and we drove he drove off it was like instant like that yeah there's uh, the the chiva wallet is uh, it's okay there's a couple of bugs with it but the other wallets are now popular the moon wallet m u u n is very yep. popular other wallets green wallet uh, so that's real on the ground entrepreneurialism. That's why I'm excited. There's a lot of startups. You know, I think I can help create 50, 60 jobs down there right off the right off the bat. Just uh, bringing in some uh, some some money, some capital, some expertise. Uh, get some startups going. They're already going. I'm just kind of plugging myself into the volcano of energy that's going on there. And it's great to see Bukele openly troll and mock the IMF. On Twitter, I mean, he's, I figured you would love that. <laughs> like, that's not a surprise. It's great. I mean, because the IMF and and all these global banks uh, have really been the bane of these countries in Central America, Latin America. Explain what, like, what is the relationship between the IMF and these countries, and why do you think that's been a problem? Well, Central America, Latin America, the U.S. has overthrown something like fifteen countries in that region, and uh, it's always been a colonial uh, uh, backyard of the United States. And so the use of debt as a weapon has always been the case. If you read John Perkins' book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, uh, he explains exactly how the U.S. goes in there and they load it up with debt and then they end up acquiring assets. And there's been very little uh, movement on that in terms of how to escape U.S. colonial interests. And so now with Bitcoin, what's been recognized is that it's a path out. It's a vector out. They can have this unconfiscatable, censorship-proof money that the IMF can't get their dirty little hands on. And um, the IMF is freaking out. Uh, The central banks, I think, are on notice now that the game is up. There's a new sheriff in town, and that is Bitcoin. And uh, so that's been the relationship historically. And I think, uh, oh, another great tweet 
was from President Bukele. It was only three words, but it said volumes. Um, somebody was trying to make the case that, you know, you really shouldn't uh, piss off the IMF and, you know, you guys need to get right. And he only tweeted three words, United Fruit Company. Now, if you know the history, you know that the United Fruit Company, which later became Chiquita Banana, was really one of the first and the biggest U.S. corporations to come into the region and essentially overthrow the, the government uh, and for the corporate interest of the United States. And so uh, the Latin America, like many countries around the world, they don't reap the benefit of their local resources, their local commodities. Uh, they are client states of the U.S. and U.S. corporations. So here, Bukele, and you say it took somebody to really push it through, uh, who had to say, you know what, we're going to do this. Uh, he's a real entrepreneur. Uh, you know, I liken him to George Washington. You know, George Washington had to actually um, start a war, you know, to get a war going. To A lot of people in England hated George Washington. As an American, I venerate George Washington. Uh, during the American Revolution, a third of the population hated the idea. Another third of the population was ambivalent. Maybe a third of the population wanted to establish uh, a freedom from, from the empire, the, the English empire. So, uh, but it took a, a band of rebels to do it, and they had the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. With Bitcoin, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the Declaration of Independence are already coded into the white paper. It's already there. All, all you need is that white paper, and you effectively have everything that you would find in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And what's amazing, Pomp, is that um, here you have a country, a smallish country, um, that had, uh, because of the voluntary efforts of open source developers around the world, the Taproot upgrade, they didn't pay for that. They didn't have to worry about that. Just, their money got upgraded overnight to uh, Taproot. And now they've got even better money than they had when they started, when they first adopted Bitcoin. And that trend is going to continue. So they've got the hardest money, the best money. They've got the entrepreneurial spirit. They've got the resources. They've got a great leader. Uh, that's why we're moving there. That's why we're becoming El Sa you know, Salvadorian citizens. That's why I'm going to learn how to surf. That's why I'm uh, going to get a really nice tan. Living in El Sante. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So talk to me about moving to El Salvador and getting the uh, citizenship. One, why are you moving? Why are you getting the citizenship? But also, two, how does it actually work from a um, kind of operational standpoint? Right. So um, the volcano bonds, that uh, is a big story. Um what was an idea that was floated is that similar to other countries that offer citizenship, economic citizenship, like um, in, in, in the um, Bermuda and other countries. Bermuda, uh, St. Kitts, St. Kitts, Portugal, Nevis, they all do it. Yep. They there's a different programs out there. So the idea was floated. Hey, you know, you put a hundred thousand into these volcano bonds and you're on the fast track to citizenship or permanent residency. So I tweeted that, you know, I'm t we're very interested in this. We would love to become, Salvadorian citizens. And within a half hour, we were getting tweets back and feedback back from the president and other people in the government saying, you know, we'll make you citizens um, ASAP. You know, by the end of this year, uh, we'll get you we'll get you your citizenship. We we want entrepreneurs. Uh, we think you guys would be great um, kind of um, leading the pack in, in, in a whole wave of Bitcoin emigrants who are looking for Bitcoin city, looking for a Bitcoin country. 
Um, so I, I, I think for me, this is the biggest thing since the Genesis block. You know, for me, since I've been in this for 10 years, uh, this is the most exciting thing I've, I've seen really in many, many years. And I've always tried to be at the, the front of the, the, the front of the, you know, the tip of the spear, or, you know, the, really the, the edge of what's happening. And I think this is it. So uh, that's what, that's put all together and packing our bags and going. Yeah. Would you guys uh, become uh, Salvadorian citizens? I would. I'm curious, like, what the uh, what the response was from or the vibe from, like, citizens down there. Are they – do they understand exactly what's going on? Are they super excited about it? Are they uh, looking to learn more? Just kind of your guys' thoughts on that. Well, my pitch to everybody is um, essentially here's unconfiscatable money. It's censorship-proof money, Right. And everybody wants to have savings. Everyone wants to have some store of wealth. Everybody wants to build a nest egg. Everyone wants to have a future. And uh, the problem in these various countries is that they've been dealing with inflation and hyperinflation and corruption. And so when you say, look, here's money that you only you control and it's uh, the hardest money ever, that just immediately gets people's attention. And it's a real... It's a real uh, need. There's a need for it. Whereas in the U.S., a lot of people, because this is a much different situation, it's more seen as a tech project or it's a, it, it's a, something, a fad or something. And there's no, a lot of people here don't see it as a, as a real burning need. Yeah. But ex- except for maybe the, uh, you know, I was very early on talking to the black community in America. You know, if you look at Isaiah Jackson's book, Bitcoin and Black America, he mentions me in like the second page and saying, you heard about it with Kaiser Report. Uh, Max Kaiser, a notable white man, was uh, you know um, proselytizing Bitcoin, and the black community in America is uh, the highest concentration of Bitcoin adoption in America, for the simple reason that's unconfiscatable wealth. You know, this is a community that's had its wealth confiscated over and over and over again for you know three hundred years, right? So you say, here's unconfiscatable wealth. Those are the the two magic words, and it's like. All right, I'm in. Uh, And so that's true all over the world, all over the world, especially with the U.S. dollar hegemony all over the world. Inflation is now huge all over the world. And um, as an inflation protection, as many have explained it so brilliantly, uh, Bitcoin is par excellence, really. It's nothing better. What do you think inflation, I'm assuming you don't believe that it's actually 6.2%. And if you uh, do or don't, like how bad can it actually get? Well, we've been talking about inflation on Kaiser Report for a number of years. We've always said you have to look at the rate of money printing or M1 or M3 uh, and not look at the official numbers because the official numbers have been cooked for decades. The hedonic adjustments and all these other uh, things that are done to make it look like inflation is low uh, is, is you have to look past that and look at the real M3, M2, M1 money supply numbers. And when people started to figure that out, they stopped publishing M3. Right, because they don't want people to know the rate at which money is being printed, but that's that's the rate at which you should look at with inflation. Now, uh, approximately 18 months ago, Michael Saylor came out with his famous analogy of the melting ice cube and said, "Look, we had a lot of money in our uh, balance sheet, and it's losing 15 percent of its of its uh, purchasing power a year, or monetary energy, as he likes to say, uh, which is the real inflation number." And at the time, the government was still saying, hey, you know, inflation is uh, whatever, 4 or 5%. They were actually calling it deflation, if you recall. They were calling inflation deflation. Then they said, oh, it's inflation, it's transitory. Now it's cyclical. Now it's forever. So um, the, prog- the, the prognosis for inflation 
is that we've entered into a secular inflationary period where you're going to see um, prices rise due to the excess of money printing now for a number of years. Uh, In America, we haven't had an inflationary depression really outside of the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. If you remember, the 30s was a deflationary depression, and in the 70s, it was stagflation. This is just going to be an inflationary depression, like Weimar, Germany, or Zimbabwe. They're going to print themselves. And I can explain, you know, that there's a structural problem here, uh, why interest rates are never going to go up. Because over the past 20 or 30 years, you have this policy of extend and pretend, where all problems are recapitalized, refinanced, new bonds are floated, uh, the debt keeps going higher and higher, but the maturity rate on the debt gets longer and longer. So you have a duration risk. The 30-year Treasury bond wasn't even around when I was a stockbroker back in the early 1980s. So the problem with that is that the entire complex of debt structurally is incredibly sensitive to any rise in rates. And that's, so they're, they're, in a, they're like a Paul Volcker could not come in and raise rates and restore purchasing power of the dollar. That's off the table. That can't happen due to the structural um, the fragility of this bond uh, market that has incredible duration risk. So we're gonna. They're only gonna. There's only one option, and that is hyper hyper printing from here. And when you think about that hyper printing, is it simply the game of devalue the currency to pay off the debt in the future with those devalued currencies? And so we can make a logical argument why we should do it. But do they not understand what the impact is, or do they not have another choice? So they do understand it, but they have no other options. They have to do it anyways. Not to get overly uh, political, but, you know, you do have a situation where the people who benefit most from the money printing, the quintillionaires, a term that we coined on the Kaiser Report, who get the money first and buy assets and who make out like bandits, they're not uh, unhappy with the money that's being printed. Uh, Simultaneously, it would appear as though there is a trend toward reducing people's rights, rights of movement right of communication, a free speech. Uh, it, even in some places, in Europe, for example, people are getting locked up. I don't think you can separate those two. I think this trend toward hyperprinting and locking people up, it go together uh, because they don't want the blowback. They don't want to end up like another reign of terror situation where 35,000 French noblemen got beheaded by the peasants who got tired of all the money printing in the monarchy, right? So they're, they're aware of this. They're like, wait a minute, we don't want to do that. So let's just lock people up and print all the money anyway. So they're, they're out of control, basically. I mean, I don't think that's, that's, that's a wild statement. Uh, you know, I think that would be historically, we've seen this before. And economically, we see this happening now. And we also, there's nobody in, who's in a, position to write policy that's making any intelligent comments or choices about this at all. I haven't heard a single person make any intelligent comments about what really would need to be done. So when we think about the current situation, we've got six plus percent CPI inflation. We've got four to four and a half percent unemployment. There's 11 million open jobs in America. Um, There are 80 percent of Americans that are already being paid over $15 an hour. And we've got this public health crisis, which continues to fluctuate in terms of, I think, the uh, the uh, uh, severity 
of the uh, public health crisis and which areas in the country are or are not worried about it, uh, which seems to be bleeding into monetary fiscal policy. How do both of you think about the current environment? They're now talking about tapering. They're saying that, oh, look, we're going to actually change this. Stacey, you're smirking. So what, what do you think is actually going to happen here? Do you think that they can taper at all? They've been saying that for ooh, five years, six years that we've been covering this on Kaiser Report. And every single time the headlines come out that they're about to taper, we always tell people on Kaiser Report they're not going to taper because you can't taper a Ponzi. So we've said that for the last six years. Uh, they'll continue to say it. And it seems to work at least uh, temporarily, you know, to the markets respond, the dollar soars. Everybody thinks, oh, the, they're going to taper for real this time. But they're never going to. And um, how how can they? How can they, right? Like we... There's more debt than ever, so they can never taper that Ponzi scheme. When you think about interest rates, are we going to see nominal negative interest rates in America? Um, I think we probably already have them, right? We already have negative real rates. Yeah, ne we already have negative real oh, rates. Oh, nominal. Right? But do you nominal. think we'll see the actual negative uh, uh, rates? Like you'll literally go and they'll say the negative rate is you know negative one percent. It, when they are ready to just give up. Because if, if they do that, then the dollar's toast. Yeah, We, we had a little taste of that during the 2008 crisis. Remember, there was this talk about we can't break the buck, mm -hmm. the money market funds out there, which are not, they're not cash, right? They're, it's uh, short-term debt, all money market funds. And there was a threat that they would go under a dollar, the official rate. And they did everything that was humanly possible, including, remember, you had Tim Geithner and others go in front of Congress and say, we need uh, you know, just under a trillion dollars. Uh, Congress said, we need to read what the document is. And they said, OK, look at it tomorrow. Market crashed that night. And then they came back and they, they signed it. <laughs> and um, that led to you know, 16, 17 trillion in various bailouts and credit facilities. So, so I think that rather than go negative nominal on the actual rate. I mean, they just keep going extraordinary, extraordinary I think, printing. I think actually I, I realized you could see it in the the news, basically the, the geopolitics over the past few months is like there seems to be uh, some sort of tension really building, escalating rapidly with China. They'll do no nominal rates and they'll blame China. They'll say we had to do it because of China and they own all this debt of ours and they own you know, so much of our uh, bonds and stuff like that. So they'll say they had to do this because of China and China forced their hand. You know, the, the fact that uh, all these Chinese companies are going to have to delist from uh, the New York Stock Exchange and stuff like that. I just think there's like some sort of building, you know, the Thucydides trap is real and it's happening. And this is this is the moment they're going to use that as an opportunity to say uh, we need nominal rates. And if you're a patriot, you'll support this because this has to be done. Yeah, with the uh, with the promise of uh, you, you bite the bullet. You're fighting yeah. China. Yeah, well, it's yeah, like yeah. war bonds, right? They offered them at a lower coupon than other non-war bonds uh, to help fight win the war, right? During mm -hmm. the during the war, so that could be sold in that way. That in order to beat China, you need to take a negative nominal rate on your on your bonds, on yeah. your treasury bonds. Talk to me about pension funds and large capital allocators. It seems like they're really screwed, right? They've for years and years and years now applied kind of a 60-40 type portfolio. A lot of it is kind of cover your asset worse. Uh, I don't want to have any sort of career risk. So if I just do what everyone else is doing, then I can't get fired. Uh, and that has 
been okay, right? Most of them are hitting somewhere between, you know, five to 7%. Their actuarial rate of return is usually somewhere seven and a half, eight percent but they're missing the mark. Uh, we just saw CalPERS, uh, which is one of the largest pension funds in the uh, country, decide they're going to now start taking on leverage. They're going to start adding more uh, alternative assets. Like you just start seeing some of this stuff and I don't think they even think that they're necessarily uh, becoming more conservative or better investors. They're just saying like, we have no choice. We have to do this or literally we can't pay people. Like, how do you read that? First of all, I want to say Max pretty much got kicked off stage in uh, what was it, 2005 or six when uh, he went on stage with one of the heads of CalPERS. At the time, it was at uh, 2006. I'm surprised they let you close. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it was at the Triple Bottom Line Investing Conference. And um, they. it was just announced. It was like in um, March or April of maybe 2007 or something like that, 2006. And they had just announced that they bought all these CDOs, the headlines, look it up, from Bear Stearns. And Max <laughs> said, you know why? These things are going to zero. So, uh, and why are you putting this in these, uh, your pension funds for these uh, teachers and, you know, government workers in, in, um, in California? And uh, they, they refused to have their, you know, there was a group photo afterward and they were like, we can't have Max in there. But of course, <laughs> because, uh, all the, uh, of course Bear Stearns blew up soon after that. Max said it was going to zero. So, yeah. I, but I think one, one quick thing is that uh, in terms of the pension stuff, I think it's, that's kind of intergenerational because uh, no millennials or Zoomers have pensions, right? It's just the boomers and the boomers are trying to reconcile with reality. And the reality is that they've incurred a huge amount of debt. They blew the legacy that was America. They blew this giant, amazing economy and turned it into trash, exported all our jobs, left a hollow out shell of, of rust belt and a hundred thousand annual overdose deaths. So they're the ones that created that. And I think, you know, fortunately for zoomers and millennials, they've got Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the pension funds, you talk, they're getting five to seven percent. But how far out on the risk curve are they going for that? They're going way out on the risk curve. You know, 10 year treasuries are one and a half percent. So they're they're taking on an enormous amount of risk and they're, they're exposed to an enormous amount of risk and they're going to lose an enormous amount of money. Um, and that's pretty clear. The um, what's really sad about the whole pension industry and about the savings industry is that the. Uh, artificial suppression of interest rates, you know, the past 10, 15, 20 years has effectively moved $5 trillion from pension accounts and savings accounts into the pockets of speculators. It's a theft, right? Mm-hmm. Interest rates should have been allowed to increase long ago. They normalized rates. To, you know, if you look at different schools of thought and different studies, you know, you come up with around 5% would be a normalized rate and we kind of fluctuate around 5%. So we've been hovering around zero for years now. Uh, even and even though you've got uh, all kinds of indications of bubbles forming in everywhere that would require a response from the central bank to raise rates. Uh, instead, they've lowered rates and um, they've effectively stolen a lot of money from these pension accounts. They go into the speculators' pockets and then speculators end up getting more political power and then they end up influencing Washington to pass laws to make it easier for them to take money out of pension accounts. Mm-hmm. You know, this is something El Salvador is going to have a chance to avoid because they're now going to be writing securities laws and rewriting securities laws for the first time in El Salvador. And they're going to do so in ways that have go to school on the problems in the U.S. and what's happened and to avoid all that and based and built on a Bitcoin standard. 
So all that kind of um, influence peddling, market manipulation, and the, the, the pump, you know, the market, you know, you've watched our show, you know my show, you know us. We've been reporting on this, in not only on, on the Kaiser Report, but going back 18, 19 years. The amount of manipulation by these banks and bankers is is ludicrously off the chart. I mean, Jamie Dimon, I'm not going to go on a huge tangent there, <laughs> but they've paid hundreds of millions of dollars in fines. They were caught rigging precious metals markets. The Bank of England caught rigging LIBOR market. Every single market maker and bank around the world has been caught manipulating markets, stealing money, front-running markets. Congress is even uh, trading on inside information. The, the level of corruption is extraordinary. And it's all fueled by that ultra-cheap money. That's why they don't want to raise rates. You don't think Nancy Pelosi wants higher rates if she's able to stick her sticky little fingers in the pie every day and take some cash out based on insider trading and artificially cheap credit? That's not where it's going to come from. So they, they're incentivized to commit fraud. If you took fraud out of the U.S. business model, you'd have nothing. Joe John, do you guys have... Uh any sort of like pension plans or, or uh, outside of just like your traditional retirements? No, I just have retirement accounts. Bitcoin. I, yeah, I mean. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I do think That's I also, uh, Nick uh, Badia today, he wrote a piece <laughs> about like Bitcoin is life insurance as well, right? And, and his main argument was, hey, normally what you do is you buy a policy, you then pay your premiums, and then at some point in the future, uh, somebody pays your loved ones, your family, your friends, uh, future value for what you purchased upfront. And uh, th there's some arbitrage there when you do ultimately die. And his argument was, well, that's basically what Bitcoin does as well, right? If you buy the Bitcoin today and you hold it for a long period of time, Bitcoin becomes your life insurance policy in a very unique way. And would you be better off buying the life insurance and paying the premium or just buying Bitcoin, right? And allowing it to appreciate. What do you guys think about that? Well, the insurance industry is a huge buyer of interest rate products. And the, the very arbitrage you're, you're talking about is the basis for how the insurance company operates. Their, their payouts are going to be less than the aggregate income from their um, premiums and what they have uh, earning interest at the various treasury bond markets. Uh, I think that one of the fallouts from the blow up in the global bond market is going to be the insurance industry gets blown up as well. So there won't be an insurance industry. Uh, when you see when these bonds blow up, uh, finally, um, so I think it's prudent to seek alternative ways to save for the future. Bitcoin, obviously, offering as Nick points out, you can it's a substitute for life insurance in this way. Plus, it's an asset you own because if you weren't around during the 2008 financial crisis, as Max mentioned, it was breaking the buck in the mutual fund sector, but also. It was the insurance sector which really got bailed out. It was AIG and the likes of those that got bailed out. If it if it weren't, you know, on the surface, everybody thinks, okay, it was Goldman Sachs and it was all these uh, JP Morgan that were bailed out. But really, it was the other side of those derivatives and the yeah. AIG. So they could have gone bust overnight. Um and that could happen in the next situation. So your life insurance company, whoever has underwritten your life insurance policy, they could go bust easily. Yes, the counterparties that they had to bail out. Yeah. They don't get as much attention. And I saw the same thing happen in August, in uh, September of 1987. I was working as a stockbroker in New York and during the crash of 87. And people talk about Black Friday, where the market dropped, I think, 22%. But on the following Monday, the market was set to open down another 500 points. And, it, and then they said every insurance company in America would be bankrupt, insolvent. So it was then when Robert Rubin, uh, uh, Ronald Reagan, and Alan Greenspan 
formed the uh, Working Group on Finance, which became known later as the Plunge Protection Team. And that was a, a seminal moment in American financial history because for the first time, the federal government was buying S&P futures contracts to bail out the stock market. So free market capitalism, as we knew it, kind of died on that day. And that's metastasized and become huge. So that instead of being, you know, part, a little fringe aspect to the markets, it has become the tail wagging the dog. It is the market. The government is in there every single day, steering prices, moving things around, uh, changing laws, really at the behest of their small coterie of insiders. And the free market, as we know in America, doesn't exist anymore. Is that a uh, net positive or net negative since they started? It's a shit show. That's why we're moving to El Salvador. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting out of this shithole. <laughs> I'm you- so sick of these privileged <laughs> Wall Street bankers getting the free handouts and, and claiming that they need more free handouts at the expense of everybody. Look at society. It's breaking down. 100,000 overdoses last year from uh, you know the pharmaceutical in- industry, OxyContin and the rest. Uh, the cities are breaking down, San Francisco, New York, Chicago. Um, that's all. Homicides last year homicides. was the single largest one-year jump in homicides in any given year uh, in history. That's, and that's, that's growing. That's a plague. The America has a plague of violence and corruption. It's, it's an oligarchy uh, plagued by violence and corruption, and it's growing exponentially because of the money printing. That's, that's the cause of it. You're, you're, you're rewarding the worst in society. It's called a cacistocracy, where it's rule by the worst. Not a meritocracy, it's a cacistocracy. And um, it's not going to get better tell me, tell anytime me soon. A, tell me more about a, what did you say, cactus? Cacistocracy. I can't pronounce any words. So so it's, I, I think it's a Greek try. word, you know, and, and if you, the, 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 the prefix there, kaka. You know, people know that as shit, yep. right? So it's a shitocracy, essentially, <laughs> is what runs America. It's it's run by the, the shittiest, most corrupt, evil, sticky-fingered losers uh, ever assembled in one place of governance in Washington, D.C. And uh, the results are in. It's plain to see. You look around. It looks terrible. It's uh, even driving here from Fort Lauderdale. It's like going through. I said that I've been Marrakesh looked better. You know, I've been in so-called third world countries that had better infrastructure. The airports in this country are, go to Asia, you know, go somewhere else. You'll see airports that are uh, very, very, very different. So anyway, the point is this. Bitcoin is a relentless optimism. It's a vector out. It's the soundest money ever. And here you got a country that's going to make it legal tender. I've got skills. You know, I'm a former banker. I'm a Bitcoiner. Uh, we've got a whole history in this space. Let's, we're going to move there. We're going we're to be part of a, the new world, the new, new world. Are you going to completely leave residents in the United States? Like in terms of, are you going to move there and get rid of your house in, uh, I think, North Carolina? Or, no, we, we, we would keep our house and we would keep our U.S. passport as well. Okay. And um, we won't uh, stay there for the rainy season. The rainy I'm season. not big on rainy season. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably with you on that. I don't like the cold or, or probably rain is uh, lumped in there as well. Yeah. Can, can you talk about just global adoption of Bitcoin, right? So the argument against El Salvador is a relatively small country. Um, but can you just talk about other countries that can benefit from this outside of obviously Zimbabwe with hyperinflation? What other countries do you think will be next? Right, I think in the region, that definitely the word's gone out and they're looking very closely at it. So um, Guatemala, which is next door, uh, is looking at it quite seriously. Uh, all, the, all the countries in the region, they're going to see this country's 
the benefits that will accrue pretty quickly, and they're going to jump onto it. And they all have access to cheap energy. They've got volcano energy in particular, geothermal energy. Uh, so that that region, I think, in the next 12 also, to 18 months. Also, you know, in terms of that region is like, um, yes, you've had a lot of interference and it, it's probably not very easy being a small country uh, so close to the United States. But, you know, the only other alternative that keeps on being offered is like a very, very left wing communist sort of um, populist. So once they see like the standard of living and the the situation for the ordinary person, you know, their their situation get better in El Salvador. I think that could inspire some more left wing progressive sort of side of the equation uh, across the region. So I, I hope that happens because I don't think, you know, going back and forth between, you know, communism and then, uh, you know, a U.S. backed military coup sort of situation, junta, um, I think, you know, this could be, this is plan B, right? This is a, a, a way out of that, you know, back and forth. Between breaks those the cycle. Two. Yeah, breaks that cycle. I feel like you two are the perfect people to talk about this next sensitive topic, which is uh, in the Middle East. There's a lot of people who I think recognized uh, a relationship with the world superpowers that maybe wasn't so favorable to their country. And so uh, there's many different attempts or uh, strategies as to how to deal with that. Right. Some of them uh, thought that maybe going after the way that oil was priced would be one strategy. Other people thought that being hyper uh, defiant was another strategy. Some people thought that being super collaborative was a strategy. Uh, it usually has not turned out very well for many of those countries because there ends up being violence at the kind of end of the uh, road. How do you think about that with South or Central American countries, with something like El Salvador, which I think if you ask most people in the world, they'd be like, the country has six and a half million people. Like they couldn't, you know, they, they probably have a hard time fighting anybody, let alone a superpower. And they don't think of them as like a violent type attacking country. Yeah. But Bitcoin is, like I said, it's the, the market for that is 7 billion. That's a total addressable market of citizens and residents of Bitcoin. So look at the Middle East shit show. And that's caused by previous empires dividing up on along all sorts of lines. You go to Beirut and it's, like an amazing place, but yeah, there's dividing lines and, and like this religion gets that many parliamentary seats and that religion gets that. And like, it's just an absurdity that uh, divides people by these artificial barriers. Whereas Bitcoin unites everybody and ends that because it's, we're, we're all part of the protocol. You know, no, if you have one Satoshi, you have just as much power and say over the protocol as Michael Saylor. So like, it doesn't matter. You're, you're on the protocol. There's no bully. There's no empire. There's no dictator. There's no anybody. There's just you on the protocol. Yeah. And also Salvadorians, there's 30% of Salvadorians live in the United States. And there's that huge remittance market. So by adopting a Bitcoin standard, they're going to save $400 million a year right off the get go. By going into Bitcoin mining, projected to make a billion in revenues year one. How how much can he transform this country in terms of like leapfrogging? Uh, let's say that the United States is near the top, right? Whether it's the top or top 10 or, or whatever from a, a country standpoint, uh, based on a bunch of different metrics. And let's say El Salvador is uh, near the middle of the pack to the bottom, right? Depending on what metric you're looking at. Can he leapfrog into so, the yeah, top 10 countries in the world? Well, 
you can leapfrog onto this new monetary standard, right? Because you have no money of your own. Correct. It's just the U.S. dollar. Yep. So they have no control over it anyway. It's just like with Africa that they leapfrogged onto, you know, mobile technology because they didn't even, and bank, you know, uh, banking infrastructure on their mobile phones. They were one of the first there with things like M-Pesa because they didn't have a legacy banking system. So not having a legacy system often does allow one to leapfrog. So yeah, is it really about leapfrogging or is it more about stepping away from a falling, collapsing building and surviving? So right now they've got a dollar in El Salvador. It's a dollar standard. And the U.S. dollar is in serious trouble, as we just talked about. And the U.S. economy is in serious trouble, as we just talked about. So um, is it about leapfrogging or catching up to the U.S. or is it about stepping aside and letting the U.S. collapse and not getting hurt badly by it. I think a lot of people, the incentive at this point in Bitcoin circles is to escape the the controlled demolition of the U.S. empire, which is a huge, going to be a huge event in the next uh, 18 to 24 months. But without having to uh, jump on uh, some sort of China bandwagon. So that's often like the the paradigm that is set up over the past few hundred years is like, here's one superpower and it's being displaced by another superpower. And we've had, what, 18 Thucydides traps over the past uh, several hundred thousand years or something, not hundred thousand, but hundreds or thousands of years. And so this is a, a plan B. It's a way out of that cycle. Like it, break, it breaks all the cycles. I think it was Michael Saylor that said it. What, what would it take for you guys to renounce your citizenship? Like, would there be like a final straw where you just be like, all right, like, screw this, we're out? Nope, nope. Well, we've got too much family here, but also, um, you know, once you're over a certain net worth anyway, it's almost impossible to renounce U.S. <laughs> citizenship. So yeah. uh, maybe if, 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 you know, if you had just like a couple hundred dollars to your name, it, it's possible to do, but um, it's kind of difficult. But, it, you know, I, I think... Um, you know, America is a really rich country in terms of the resources it has, including the people. So we have that federal system. We have that sort of states' rights. And we have, uh, you know, we just lived in Europe for over 15 years. And to come from Europe, which is like a museum to America, which is super dynamic and the people are dynamic. And, you know, as Salvadorans, by the way, like most, a lot of Salvadorans are also uh, American. So yeah, it's just like, I don't see myself not wanting to be here. Like, okay. A lot of people in the whole, well, I would say crypto space rather than Bitcoin space moved to Puerto Rico and you can move to Puerto Rico as an American because they're American and you could uh, go there and not pay taxes and do all that stuff. But I don't want to, you know, be restricted in terms of how much I can travel, where I could travel, uh, staying in America, keeping, you know, my family's here. We have friends here. Like, I don't want to be restricted in terms of where I can and can't go. Yeah, the point about states is a really good point, because within the United States, unlike in Europe and elsewhere, you do have states' rights and autonomy. And so there are states in America that are becoming very Bitcoin friendly, Texas and Wyoming and Florida. Right. So you guys have kind of come to Florida uh, in large part because it's becoming very friendly to Bitcoin. So this is a, a kind of a variation on this theme. You know, now we're looking at different country, but the same thought process. Like, well, I want to be where it's Bitcoin friendly, where I'm getting some respect because I'm a Bitcoiner. Um, so uh, it could be that Texas, for example, which has already got Ted Cruz and some other people, or Wyoming with Cynthia Lummis, 
you know, they actually decide that they're going to take a firmer position against the federal government and they're going to be a safe harbor to Bitcoiners. And we're not going to uh, thwart innovation. We're not going to tax them extraordinarily. I mean, a a great... thing to look at is what happened with marijuana laws. Like I don't, I don't smoke marijuana, but I do smell it everywhere you go in America. And it's just extraordinary, right? I mean, it's still against the law federally and yet you could smoke it and buy it and sell it all over the United States and various States because they just said, you know, to the federal government, that's extraordinary. Uh, first of all, the word marijuana, we've been told, means you're a cop. You have to say, oh, really? that, that, yeah. that's what we've been told. So uh, you cop. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, second of all, is I think there's two different components to this, right? Is we've seen places like, let's say Colorado, I think is the quintessential example, where they went and they changed the state law. So there was a legislative process of right. sure. this, and they did it because they got tax revenue and, and all the benefits they got. But there's also places like Baltimore, where there was a district attorney who said, I have no legislative power whatsoever, but I'm just not going to prosecute these people anymore. And they decriminalized it. And so I think that uh, it's harder to decriminalize without the legislative powers, right, for something like this. Uh, But I do think that it would be absolutely fascinating if all of a sudden you had a state step up and say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to basically say there's absolutely zero income tax or there's zero whatever tax. Uh, Maybe the closest we've seen is Kentucky, I think, changed some of the uh, taxation laws for people uh, around electricity. So if you use Kentucky, power to mine Bitcoin. Mm. Uh, they change your tax status uh, or tax treatment. Again, uh, that's more for a corporate entity and it was just at the state level. I don't know really how it works with the relationship with the federal level. Yeah, taxation. I mean, okay, Florida got no state or local tax. Same thing with Texas, mm-hmm. uh, right? So the states have a lot of power. And the Puerto state, Rico. Puerto Rico is a very interesting situation tax-wise and it's still part of the U.S., U.S. territory, et cetera. So the states have a lot of leeway. And I think that as Bitcoin, as other countries particularly start to show what you can do when you have a Bitcoin standard, a lot in the States, you might have governors and mayors and politicians decide that, you know, we need to get in on this uh, ourselves and they can be very active and proactive in in pursuing that. And I think that's part of the game theory built into the Genesis block. You know, it's been with us since the very, very beginning. There's that game theory that's built into Bitcoin protocol that encourages this type of, um, mutually beneficial outcome for all uh, in a decentralized way. And that it's uh, the net net is that we are pushing out the weak fiat money and even gold, you know, gold being demonetized. Mm-hmm. I think that the numbers are in on that. Um, so because you've got the apex predator, you've got Bitcoin. In your mind, what is the end goal for Bitcoin? Is it to become the global reserve currency? Like where do you see it ending up in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? Right. Bitcoin becomes uh, essentially a global reserve currency because uh, it just pushes everything else out. There's nothing that can compete with it. And people want to use it as money and as a store of value. And that's what dictates ultimately the, the, the market. It'll be a unit of account. Everybody will think in Bitcoin, what does this cost me in Bitcoin? What does this car cost me in Bitcoin? What does this, how much Bitcoin am I earning in this job? Like even if they have a local currency that's different. That's true. What are the obstacles to get there? The obstacles to get toward hyper Bitcoinization on a global basis uh, are uh, the entrenched oligopoly that is not keen on giving up their position. And uh, the thing about Bitcoin is that it's a peaceful revolution. It's not a violent revolution. Unlike any other revolution in the past, it's been a violent revolution. With Bitcoin, it's all you need to do is adopt and use Bitcoin uh, to be part of the revolution. And as the use grows, as price goes up, everything that we know about it, 
uh, and it squeezes out the weak hands, it squeezes out the weaker economies, the weaker minds, the weaker, and it, it acts like a mirror and it, it exposes people like Paul Krugman or somebody like that, who's a public intellectual, uh, others, other economists who are uh, like Nassim Taleb was an amazing case of someone who had an incredible reputation. And within three or four months, it became completely trashed because the Bitcoin mirror showed us that this guy was intellectually dishonest at some level and it, it got crushed by it. Yeah. Um, and so this is this is this happens across the spectrum with other economists, other intellectuals, other monetary theories. Uh, like Stacy was saying, it's an excellent point. Typically in the Central America, it's a choice between military dictatorship and socialism. And either side of that coin is doesn't work. You know, this is the third option. This is the third way. This is the vector out. This is the Bitcoin way. And it, it gets. It, it demonetizes both. It, it it gets rid of both. It's a preferential way. It's con and it's controlled entirely by the individuals who have that unconfiscatable wealth, that uh, the private key that can't be taken away from them. And that encourages a behavior in the community. You know, I say you don't change Bitcoin. Bitcoin changes you. And you see that in El Salvador, where the president is thinking big. He's thinking in new ways. He's thinking, let's bring all these people here. He's getting the benefit of that of that Bitcoin philosophy, the Bitcoin thinking that 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 comes with it, beyond just the fact that its number go up. You see, you see Bitcoin changing him. You see Bitcoin change Michael Saylor. You see Bitcoin change us. You see Bitcoin change everybody. So, I, I everybody's on their own journey. Only you can do you. You know, you can approach the rabbit hole in any way that is unique to you, but we all end up at the same place, which is hyper-Bitcoinization. Yeah, I think that's what, for me, the key to Bitcoin maximalization or Bitcoin maximalist is that the recognition that there is this one point on the horizon that everyone's kind of going toward. And to deny that is just wasting everyone's time. Just understand that we're all kind of heading into that one global hyper-Bitcoinization, Bitcoin standard point on the horizon. We're on this pilgrimage together toward this, this, this outcome. And that's Bitcoin maximalization. And for those who argue against it, I, I, I'm there, anyone's happy to argue against it, but I, I, there, no one's made a compelling case that, that the, what I just said is not true. Uh, they make very pedantic cases. They make very circular logical kind of runarounds and trolling cases that go nowhere. And we've the, all seen them. The fiat world, I think, has like a social credit score mentality. So you're kind of brought up to be very suburban and be very polite and very nice to somebody just because they smile at you. And uh, for me personally, and I can only speak for myself, like that sort of toxic maximalism just uh, saves me from having to be nice to somebody just because I, I've known them for 10 years and now they have a shit coin that they, you know, and it just helps to like, okay, I just uh, don't, I, 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 how do I get over the fact that I just want to be polite and uh, say, oh, hey, that's cool. Glad for you. You know, it's just like, it's a way, it's a self-defense mechanism. Maybe, you know, some people are different. They, they could easily like not be polite and still not be toxic, <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? But I can't. Let, let, let me ask uh, two questions. So one of the uh, things that happens in the fiat world is that you have dollars. Dollars are uh, the reserve uh, currency from a medium of exchange store value. Uh, it's also the unit of account that people use. And the game, if you will, in the fiat world is to earn dollars or get uh, acquire dollars somehow to then take them, invest them, 
-hmm. grow in dollar terms and then go back into dollars, right? So it's just the acquisition of more and more and more dollars. Yeah. When you think of Bitcoin, is there a world where you would say, okay, we want to acquire Bitcoin, whether we're buying it, we're earning it, however we acquire it. You then invest the Bitcoin into other things, whether it's equities or real estate or whatever, with the hope of acquiring more Bitcoin and going back into Bitcoin? Or no, is the thought process that the there is no Bitcoin is already compounding at an incredible rate per year, over like over 150%. Correct. And so anytime you step off Bitcoin, your risk profile goes up. And it Correct. goes up dramatically. And if you're in any way not even able to handle managing risk, which is the case for 99.9% of the population out there, are very bad at handling risk because it gets very emotional. This idea of I'm going to step out, make some money, and then step back in, it almost in all cases doesn't work because you're going to step out, you're going to lose and then you're going to be in a situation where now what do I do? And most people like this is the this is called the gambling industry, right? This is Las Vegas. If you go into the a floor on a Las Vegas casino and you ask 100 people how are they doing, and they'll say I'm winning, and you know that's false. They're all losing. Yep. And that's 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 the problem is that the risk reward on Bitcoin is so incredibly good that to step off that uh, Bitcoin into anything else is you're, you're bringing on an, an, a, a lot of risk that you don't need to because you're already compounding at this incredible rate per year. So why even take on any risk in that in that way? Yeah, so it's like 170%, I think, right now, compound annual growth rate over the last right. decade. Right, so why, why would you step off that? Yep. You know? So let, let's say that Bitcoin continues on this path of hyper-Bitcoinization, which every, de you know, every kind of uh, underlying fundamental, every single data point we have seems like that's the re general direction. How long it takes up for debate, but that's where we're going. Kind of your point, there's this like North Star that is the, the culmination point. When we get there, the idea would be that Bitcoin is quote unquote stable, right? One Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. And so therefore everything is priced in Bitcoin, et cetera. Does your opinion change once we get to that point? So right now it, you're getting kind of the monetization of Bitcoin, very opposite of the demonetization of gold. And so you're getting this priced into the world. The world's trying to figure out how much is uh, a decentralized kind of transparent central bank with a programmatic monetary policy that's literally protected by millions of people around the world. What's that worth? Right now, the world thinks it's worth a trillion dollars. I think that everyone in this room thinks it's worth way more than that in the future, but we'll, we'll see how that happens. Do we reach a point where there's stability and then you have to go back to the thinking of investing Bitcoin to earn more Bitcoin? No. Okay. Because the end game on Bitcoin is something very, very interesting, very remarkable. And if you notice, Pomp, you know, you and I have been in this for a while, that there is a whole school now of Bitcoin philosophy and Bitcoin kind of... Um, you know, deep thinking that 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 people like Robert Breedlove and others get into it. Uh, Michael Saylor touches on it. I think that where we're heading here is where we start to really have a different thought about what is wealth and what is the, my purpose here on planet Earth, and where the idea of that pursuit of of wealth. And that constant calculation that people are making, this is risk, this is not risk, I get a little bit here, I get a little bit there, I got my portfolio, I got my multiple income streams, I got this going on. I think that, that there's a fundamental shift because you're monetizing people's better nature. And, and you're coming out of a, a period, a many, many thousand year period where we're monetizing people's worst aspects. People's greed has been transformed by Bitcoin into altruism. 
into something that's mutually beneficial for everyone. And when you have that happen in society, the people are going to step out and just say, you know what, I just want to stay here, play my flute, raise a garden of zucchinis. And, you know, I'm not, I I'm just want to be me. I just want to be cosmically uh, one with who I am as a human being. And I want to look at the stars and I just, I don't, you just leave me alone. Um, I think that that's the outcome when, toward a hyper-Bitcoinization of th that, that when you have that moment of almost as a species, without getting too off the range here, but almost as a species, it's almost like an evolutionary step change where we finally put down the childish toy of our egos and our need to get more and more and more. And, and we join... We join our into a more of a communal uh, high, if you that's will. That's the time preference, the shift in time preference. Mm -hmm. That's 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 what the rabbit hole is all about. So, so the skills that people have that are thinking, you know, I have skills in hustling. I have skills as an entrepreneur. There's a Bitcoin thread of thought that says that no matter what I do, Bitcoin's going to keep going up anyway. Well, am I ever going to be able to use my skills? And the answer is no, you won't. You're good. We're all going to go to a place where people are essentially going to be in a different, completely different place. Now, obviously, there's no way to, the only way we can know this is going to happen is to actually live through it and see if it's going to happen. And it, it, what's the timing on this? And it, it all depends on how fast the dollar collapses. I think that's the linchpin to the whole, the whole puzzle. You know, you need the dollar to really collapse, to, to move us beyond everything you associate with the dollar and the post-World War II global hegemony and the, 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 the model of hyper-consumption, you know, 70% of the U.S. economy is consumption. And yet also you have incredibly high rates of uh, Prozac and Xanax and Oxycontin and stress and disorder and dysfunction, right? It's not a happy society. People generally are miserable. I think it's going to bring out the best in us, though. And I think, I don't okay. know if Kelly said it first or he said it for, about us, like if we were the ones that said it first. And then, so it's hard to remember where it all began, but uh, the best minds in the world are being attracted to Bitcoin. And I think you're going to have, I think we're in the middle of the early days of a Renaissance 2.0. And, you know, just look at history to see what happened with Renaissance 1.0. And, you know, Medici wasn't exactly a high time preference sort of guy. Like why, how, how did we have in one little city state, how did we have, Da Vinci, Michelangelo, Botticelli. How did we have all those people in one spot? Like, why was Medici financing them? Was he like hoping to flip it to the next uh, gold dealer? You know, no, he was uh, thinking, we're talking about Medici today because he financed those guys, because he, he helped pay for that. Like, mm -hmm. w if he had just been some rich dude in history, like, are we going to talk about Elon Musk in 100, 500 years? It depends on what he decides to do with his wealth, right? Can Think you, about that. your question in terms of a relationship. You know, you're married. You just are getting married. Yep, I'm single. <laughs> <laughs> You'll soon be married. <laughs> right? So in a marriage, you realize that, you know, you don't compete with each other, essentially. You are one, you know, and you are... There's everything that goes on in a marriage. And that's kind of like globally, we all of all of society could be having that experience where we're all essentially expressing a, a love, on, on a, more of a love um, 
um, a, a protocol than than one right now, which is based. Certainly, our economy is fifty cents of every dollar goes into the Pentagon. It's a war-based economy. The fiat money, as Paul Krugman at the New York Times said, is backed by men with guns. That's what backs the U.S. dollar is violence. And that's true of all fiat money. It has been for hundreds of years. So love itself is not monetized. Love is not in, it's not is put, has a premium in our lives in that way. Imagine if, it, if if it's flipped. If if hatred and war and violence are demonetized and they get pushed down down to the bottom of the emotional speed rack, and love, faith, and 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 understanding and peace are moved up, you're going to have a completely different society. So that that's my answer to your question. Is that the question is not, do we at that time, is there going to be a period where we're out there trying to aggregate more Bitcoin because we've achieved uh, parity? Um, I think the answer is no, because we're going to be very, very different as a species and as, as people. John, what questions do you have? Can you both talk about your thoughts around just the U.S. government holding Bitcoin, all the regulations that's going on currently and like, does that stifle innovation? Does it not? Can you just give me your thoughts around all that? The U.S. government stupidly sold their Bitcoin, right? They had Ross Ross Albrecht's Bitcoin. They sold it. They sold it to Tim um, Tim Draper, you know, over in Silicon Valley, right? They've been sellers of Bitcoin stupidly. Um, they they're stupid. The Chinese government is stupid for kicking out the miners, and um, they don't they don't you know uh, Bitcoin uh, avoids narcissistic kleptocrats. Uh, the U.S., China, countries that have mental problems. Uh, it doesn't go well. Uh, so it, will the U.S. change? I think what we've said is that you've got the states have the ability to reformulate a, a course of action and take on the federal government. So that's where it's going to come from. Texas, Wyoming, Florida are, are leading. So um, maybe the Texas uh Teachers Pension Fund or something like that, or the Texas General Municipality Pension Fund says we're going to put a Bitcoin position that starts a ripple effect uh, for all, all over from state to state. Uh, it could see that happening. But at the federal level, I don't see it happening because uh, for the reasons you know that I just said. Hmm. The, the other piece of this uh, is we recently had um, uh, Whit Gibbs coming from uh, Compass Mining, and he... I don't know if he meant to say it or uh, slipped and said that the United States government was mining Bitcoin in the middle of the country. Let's say that there's a 50-50 probability, whether that's happening or not. What is the U.S.'s play? If you were the president of the United States and you said, okay, here's a situation I'm facing currently, we've talked about that, uh, and then here's this new technology, do you shut down the Federal Reserve and go buy a bunch of Bitcoin? Do you start mining? Do you just make the rules uh, a little bit more relaxed so that you can incentivize uh, entrepreneurs and innovators? Like, how do you think about, like, what should they do? We, make we know- Michael Saylor the Fed chairman <laughs> or the Treasury secretary. Why? And say, um, take the game book, the, the, the playbook you're using over MicroStrategy and apply it to the federal government, please, and do it fast so that we don't get disintermediated out of the 21st century. Because at this rate, we're going to be blown out of the water by these smaller, more nimble, more agile, smarter Bitcoin countries. I think think they don't care about, um, I think, you know, they're in the mindset of we have the U.S. treasuries and the U.S. dollar and we're dominant then. But I, it makes sense geopolitically that they would be mining Bitcoin, just as probably all many nations are mining Bitcoin in order to move secretly around the internet and around the globe because it's it's 
you know, untraceable money and you don't need a 747 to move your gold around and you can just, you know, finance projects, dark, you know, black ops, you know, with uh, Bitcoin. So I think that's probably if, if they're mining Bitcoin, that's probably what they're doing, not necessarily to stockpile like any uh, store of value. Plus, you have to if somebody saw me, oh, the federal government's mining Bitcoin in the middle of America somewhere, I'd have to ask, well, is it the same federal government that is operating outside of the uh, democratic process that gave us all kinds of political problems in the last 5, 10, 20 years? I mean, if they are mining it, is it are we going to be sharing in that bounty or are they going to steal no, it? No, no. <laughs> I mean, they could be using our resources to go mine Bitcoin and then they could go leave the country, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, these guys are, like I said, they're the corruption is... Uh, it's on a scale that's off the charts. So I, well, I wouldn't I, trust them for a one second. I do know for a fact, because a person who worked at the organization told me uh, that in, let's call it 2012, 2013, one of the federal law enforcement agencies, uh, they wanted to conduct uh, cryptocurrency-related uh, investigations. And as part of that, uh, they wanted to do some undercover-type work. Uh, they either did not believe they could get approved or went for the approval and got denied for a budget approval to purchase Bitcoin. So instead they said, well, they always give us approval for computers. And so they went ahead and they put in a budget approval for mining equipment and they ended up mining Bitcoin. Now, one, they were able to actually get their hands on Bitcoin. Two, it was virgin Bitcoin, so you couldn't trace it, et cetera. And then that was used for uh, investigations. Now, I don't want to uh, exaggerate in terms of my guess is that that was a very small amount, right? And I don't think that people would count that as like the government is holding Bitcoin, right? I think when we talk about that, we're talking about it in terms of it's on you know Treasury, Federal Reserve. This is part of our uh, our uh, kind of national strategy. Outside of just that, of putting Michael Saylor or somebody like that to almost pull off a speculative attack, what else would you do? They seize miners in Texas. You right? would seize the miners. Hell yeah. That's probably what they're thinking about. That's the easiest way for the U.S. government to get into Bitcoin businesses, to go down to those huge operations that are in Texas now and seize them. Uh, like they stole, they took the gold in the in the 30s, right? They seized everyone's gold. The federal government could seize all those miners in Texas. That could trigger a serious conflict with the state of Texas. So I was just going to ask if, <laughs> if they were to go do it, because that, yeah. that's a pretty bold Well, the, uh, gov- step the government there. under eminent domain, uh, uh, you know, under our, under the auspices of national security, can do anything they want to do. They can take your shoes off at the airport. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, <laughs> and again, it's getting worse and worse, and people and the people's rights are being more and more abused. So they, they would go down. That, that would be, from in my view, that would be the easiest way for the federal government to get in the game pretty fast. That's what, I mean, like our guests, our frequent guests that we've had on Kaiser Report, Jim Rickards, who works with the CIA wargaming financial war. And he always said to us on Kaiser Report that the U.S. government would seize all of the gold held on behalf of other nations. So we hold a lot of gold of our own, the United States gold, but we also own gold. We hold gold for other nations. Well, Afghanistan, and that, right? Well, yeah, but nations like Germany, uh, correct? You know, but big, I'm just saying, big ones, they just, our allies that we would seize their gold. They just reneged on the on the Afghani gold. Yeah, yeah, the Afghans basically uh, whatever whoever you want to say is in power now, right? Yeah. Depending yeah. on if it's the official or unofficial, basically yeah. said, "Give us our money back," and they said, "We're not giving it to yeah. you because we don't know who who's in charge." Yeah, so that's what they would do. That's the similar mindset would happen with um, whatever 
you know, Bitcoin miners, that makes sense. Like we've already seen with China, with their, with their thinking, how they're operating. And I think it's a, you know, this Thucydides trap, this relationship between the U.S. and China, the creditor and debtor nation going forward is what to look at for what we might do. Yeah, it, it is. Um, it, it's fascinating to think about uh, for them to get into the game in any material way. Both of you immediately jump to uh, them doing something that most people would argue it was a violation of some kind of right. And there, there's ways that they could position it. There's ways that they could uh, talk about it. You know, I go all the way back to uh, enhanced interrogation techniques, right? As uh, as kind of a, an example outside the United States. Then obviously we have things like TSA, etc., inside the United States. Uh, if we start to uh, push further into this stuff, we just saw today New York City, uh, they now are going to have a couple of different things. I do not want to, for the uh, enjoyment of everyone at home, talk about the specific public health crisis and the validity of it, mm-hmm. uh, or else we will find ourselves not on YouTube anymore. Really? Uh, but, which by, the, by its own right we, is, is a we problem. We always tell our guests that you can't say the C word. Yes, there's no uh, C We just get deep platforms. So, say the C word. To, to, which, by the way, is absurd <laughs> that, that we have to talk about. Exactly. This. But... Uh, in New York City, you now, if you are between the ages of five years old and 11, got to get the uh, get the jab to go into a restaurant. And also, if you are a private business, the city is now making it a legal requirement for you to mandate your private employees to go ahead and do it as well. Uh, does that all play into this? Right. And I'm using that them as one specific example just because in the news today. But how do you think about some of the encroachments uh, in other areas that have nothing to do with money or uh, finance or Bitcoin? But, but it, has a, it has a lot to do with money and okay. money printing. It, it, so, as I was saying earlier is that because they're not going to stop printing money, they need to lock everyone down to stop them from rising up and with the pitchforks and, and going after the entrenched oligarchs. Right. So they got to lock them up. It's a prison. It's an open prison. I mean, it works in Saudi Arabia. It works in um, Gaza. It mm-hmm. works in other countries around the world. They have open prisons that they run, and uh, you can't leave. Or you know, we're, we we have open prisons in America right now. It's called the uh, reservation system. If you've ever been in North Dakota and the Dakotas and up in those areas, you've got a, the native population are, are on are living in open air prisons, right? Mm-hmm. So um, now we have that model being adopted across the board. I think it's a failure of consensus. I think you see um, the elite uh, have given up. They can't persuade the population. And I think you see that. I think especially since 2016, since Trump was elected, I think you see something's going on with the elites. They've literally lost their mind and they have a real contempt for the majority of the population, the deplorables who uh, didn't go to university, who live in the middle of America, who aren't working in the creative industries in Los Angeles, San Francisco, or New York. I think there's, there's a, a, they're projecting a lot. And I think they fear the people. And I think a lot of this lockdown mentality, and you see on Twitter, just go on the blue check Twitter, uh, sorry, not you, but but the fact that you know there's so yeah, many pomp. there's so many like demanding like let them die let uh, don't treat anybody who hasn't been vaccinated oh, yeah, don't yeah. treat them and it's like that's a real sick mind that they have that there's something going on yeah it's like Alec Baldwin he said on TV that he cocked the gun he pointed it he released the hammer the bullet left a gun and killed a woman but he has no idea how he she died. That's the- <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's that's that's, no, that's, that's literally what he said. Is that's that really what he said? Sick. 
to George Stephanopoulos on ABC News. It's a sickness. So I, and then he deleted his Twitter account and everything else. <laughs> it's like, shit. But, but that's that's Jamie Dimon. He's like, we printed trillions and trillions of dollars. Now people are dying from the inflation. How did that happen? Yeah, You well, printed well, the money! Even even worse even worse than that, this, this is, we had a field day with uh, one day where uh, a reporter, which, by the way, you, you get kudos. I don't remember who the reporter was, but in a very one-off case, somebody asked a hard question and said, you know, how do you think about wealth inequality uh, based on all the money printing? And I, you couldn't make this up if you tried, but he literally said something like, well, no one's come into my office and told me that, they, uh, that, there's a, uh, that they're suffering from wealth inequality. Yeah. And, and we, so we pulled it up. We explained where his office is and how do you even get to the office, right? Like, yeah. we went the whole, like so, okay, so you're only going to believe it if somebody tells you it, right? But yeah. you as the person who's responsible for this stuff. And so again, even if you say, all right, we'll give you the benefit of the doubt as a slip of the tongue, like you didn't mean it specifically like that, which questionable. Uh, I do wonder how much of this is intentional versus like we give uh, folks in positions of power and influence too much credit. Like they actually don't know this. Right. All the people who are saying inflation was not going to happen. How many of them actually believe that? I think it's a higher percentage than we probably think really did not believe inflation was going to go higher. I think they're, they are flailing. I, I think they, uh, you know, a lot of the individuals are probably trying to do something to stave off bad things. Um, but I think all the data, if you just look at the data, if you look at their data from the fiat world, if you look at the deaths of despair, I think that's one of the number one indicators that there's been an utter and complete collapse in the institutions governing this fiat world. You saw the same. The last time you saw this in peacetime was uh, the Soviet Union collapsed. And, okay, communism is shit, but the fact is that their state collapsed and you saw the result in the mass deaths of despair, a mm -hmm. lot of alcohol overdose deaths. Now we have the same thing. We have a declining life expectancy. That's never happened in peacetime. So how did that happen? What are the, what's, what's causing those deaths of despair? And I think it's also the collapse of the governance model of our fiat world. My, 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 uh, my, my one thing last year during the uh, lockdowns in New York City, uh, and, you know, uh, I'm assuming that hopefully you two are similar to uh, Plin and I and that sometimes I put tweets into the machine and I'm ready to hit tweet and I get like a slap on the hands like, hey, don't tweet that. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do this all the time. So, <laughs> something, something told me that Max may be, uh, may be very similar, right? But uh, one of the ones that got uh, uh, past the approval process <laughs> was... <laughs> You're telling me that we have entrepreneurs uh, and small business owners who literally make up 50% of jobs in America. They can't run their business, but you can go buy alcohol and get hammered, right? Mm -hmm. And you start to, you know, there's arguments around like there's a taxation component to it, right? Versus uh, there's a, a literally a public health component of like if alcoholics aren't allowed to go get alcohol, then there could be even worse. Probably, like whatever the reason is. You start to think about like, okay, that's weird. Then you look at like, wait a minute, you're telling me it's easier for me to go literally gamble on the lottery than it is for me to invest in a private business, right? For some people in America, like, okay, that's weird. And you just go down the line and you don't know how much of it is like just outright hypocrisy versus like somebody was optimizing for a good intention and just came up with a really stupid rule, right? And, and I think that what we saw with, uh, uh, with, uh, with the public health crisis yeah. was that like it exposed all this stuff. Right. Uh -huh. And you just saw it like in such black and white terms of like, even to the point where the CDC changed definitions of mm -hmm. words on their website. And you're just like, 
It's totalitarianism. Is anybody, is anybody talking about this? Like, but hold it, on that's, a second That's here. a classic read. You know, Orwellian gets overused, but look at Orwell and what he described, what he saw in the 20s, 30s, and leading up to World War II is the totalitarianism and that changing history, rewriting history, changing meaning of words. Um, how many of your friends in New York City, all your very wealthy friends, their kids went to school the whole time, right? None of the private schools ever shut down this whole time. All the poor kids, none of them have been going to school for two well, years. Algebra is illegal in California. Now. Exactly. <laughs> because because they changed, why, why did they change that definition? Because they knew what their consequences of their actions are. They knew what they're doing. They know what they're setting up. So they're setting up a situation whereby they don't want to, they don't want a French revolution and an American revolution yep. on their hands. So they're going to change the words. It's like, okay, yeah, you have no talent at all anymore or no, because we, uh, you stayed home sitting at home for the last two years. Uh, you know, I think it's, uh, I think as part, I, I think they understand the consequences of their bad decisions. And I think they're trying to, um, find a, like all this SJW stuff is a way for them to try to, uh, you know, kill me last <laughs> sort yeah. of thing of a revolution. So, last thing I want to talk about is, uh, let's say that all of the conspiracy theorists, right? Whichever the really, really severe ones, all the way to the ones who are just kind of the watered down version, uh, who appear to not only be, uh, conspiracy theorists is one label, but actually they were just early, <laughs> right? To a lot of this stuff, uh, it's another label. Um, if they're right, about majority of this. Do we see states like Texas and Florida leave? Like, do, do we get to the point where it's literally, because it feels like right now, right? If, if I had to put an overgeneralized uh, uh, kind of mechanism or, or analysis, New York City, San Francisco, and even LA to some point, there was a couple of people who left in the beginning of, you know, kind of Q2 of 2020. Then by Q3, there's a little more. Q4, more. It broke wide open in January of this year. And in, I can speak for Miami specifically. Uh, there was a big question is over the summer where people going to leave It's hot in it, you know, all the, all these things, not only did people not leave, maybe they left for a week or two of vacation, but they came back. But now there's an even larger influx. And you know, the joke mm. is that like the technology industry invaded art Basel. Right. And so like, if we continue to see the flows, we're literally California and New York lost, uh, I think it's congressional seats yes. or yes. legislative seats, right? Because they lost so much in population. Yeah. Do we get like a state's level, maybe not conflict, but just like disagreement to the point where they say, look, like we don't want to play by your rules anymore? The woke refugees. Uh, the problem is that our political leaders are really, really, really old. Like they're at the national level, federal level, they're like some of these people have been in power for 50 years. And all they've known is from the very early days of, you know, when the U.S. dollar started in 1971, they've been in on that and they, they don't know where we are now. And I, I think maybe on the state's levels is where you're going to see you have younger leaders on a state level and like dynamic mayors and stuff like that. I think where it's the only natural response to uh, you know, and the entropy at the top on a very federal level. One other piece that I'm interested in is as people move from California, let's say to Miami or Austin or whatever, uh, do the politics follow? Mm. Right. So this whole idea of like the woke revolution. The, the one thing I like about Miami uh, is I don't know what percentage of the population is from South or Central America, but like they've seen all this before. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and the yeah. first people to basically like, nah, uh, 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 you're not going to do that to me again. Yeah. Right. Are people who come from South and Central America who have seen the dictator playbook, the socialist playbook, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, 
And it feels like there's a different culture to some degree of like the acceptance. Whereas in New York city, I mean, they, they literally could probably tell you, you have to go outside every day at four o'clock and like, you know, bow down to the mayor and 50% of the population probably would do it. Like legitimately they would be like, Oh, okay. And that, like, that will save me. Like, where do I stand? One thing I want to say is that the AC, the air conditioning in Miami is turned up way higher than in Austin. Are you cold right now? Yes. <laughs> I'm freezing. We keep I'm it shivering. cold because of the lights. I apologize. It's so cold in Miami. Right. We, ha- we have a blanket somewhere because uh, my brother's usually <laughs> wearing it. Like, yeah, throw it to her. <laughs> Great. There you go. All right, Max, you got anything else uh, you want people to know before uh, before we wrap up? Yeah, on my way here, you know, we stopped. <laughs> yeah, no, he's got a whole yeah. list of notes. All right. <laughs> we, got, I, we stopped at a gas station, and, you know, it's incredible because, you know, as I was saying, things have dilapidated a lot. And uh, I went to use the restroom. And, um, you know, there in the restroom, shockingly, it was one, what you call one of these glory holes. <laughs> There's a hole in the wall. What's going on? You know, and, you know, you... You test it you, out. You interact with it. <laughs> and on the other side was Peter Schiff. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I couldn't believe it. I'm like, it's come to this. He's ruined his life no, so no, badly. No, no, literally, I should have known that was a setup. That was too good of a story. That was too good. Max, when did you tell Peter Schiff about Bitcoin? There's, there, there is controversy about yeah. that. There's no controversy about it. He himself went on Fox Business News and said, Max told me about Bitcoin at $10. Oh, right. Okay, so he said it. So he changed it, his mind. Well, he, well, he's he's Williams. He, he is a guy who's very unfamiliar with the truth. <laughs> That's not his primary currency of communication. Do you still own any gold? Do I? I've used it as collateral to borrow money to buy more Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. But That's but about s- the only I use still use own case gold. of it. You still own gold? What, how do you- I, I just, I keep it for entertainment value. I think it, it, it makes, you know, it... It puts me in a pleb position. People can make fun of me, and I like to have ways for. Can people you talk to make fun about just them. what else you guys have in your portfolios? Just it's almost it's, be- it's becoming all bitcoins. It's just all bitcoin and our and our love. <laughs> I mean, I no, no, but what, some of the miners, because you know, bitcoin, bitcoin miners are interesting. As but uh, micro strategy, micro strategy, because I think you know. he's going to do. Like, why is he stockpiling? Why is Michael strategy? Why all this bitcoin? Right. They're going to have to use it in a for the Renaissance 2.0. It's going to be the pristine ideas. collateral. I think he's going to do interesting things because I don't think he's just going to let it sit there. The volcano bonds in El Salvador, six and a half percent coupon. It's got a five year lockup on the. Uh, I'm definitely going to be. We'll buy some just for yeah, you know. Outside of the system, just to be first, like it's um, you know, just to be first there. But that, it's, a great, that. it's a great six and a half percent. So you're beating inflation and you got a five year lockup on the half the proceeds go into Bitcoin. So you get an upside on the Bitcoin. The other half goes into infrastructure, including building out the mining facilities and uh, of, of, of uh, the volcanoes, et cetera. You think it's a hundred grand to, to get the citizenship? Uh, citizenship, yep. uh, last I saw was a hundred grand, but they're pricing. You can, you can get involved for as little as a hundred dollars. You know, the pop, I think that this country, I believe last I checked, they've got approximately 20 billion in debt. I think that they can be debt free in the next 10 years. Uh, by selling uh, these volcano bonds. You yourself, I saw on Twitter, believe that these will be oversubscribed. And I agree with you on that. I mean, this is a fantastic piece of paper. And so they could sell 10, 20 billion. In a world with a quadrillion dollars in derivatives out there uh, and people desperate for yield, 
Well, people uh, people saw the micro strategy bonds. I think they outperformed every other bond on yeah, Wall Street, right? They're going to see that and on the so, sovereign level. Yeah, th this ends up. So being they're going to raise a lot of billions of dollars. They're going to retire all that debt. They're going to get rid of the IMF. They're going to be. They're going to write their own ticket outside of the influence of fiat money, IMF, U.S. dollar, and. Yeah. It's a great country with great people, great resources, and so this is uh, this is going to catch like fire all over the region. And the best mines in the world. The best mines. Are you guys going to go to Bitcoin City specifically, or somewhere else? No, it's not there yet. It's well, just yeah, a when they build coastline. It, when they build it, uh, well, it'll be in Alzante. Alzante is gorgeous. The beach, right? uh, you know, Bitcoin City is going to be more east. It's going to be. Uh, Closer to uh, the eastern uh, coast of the country. Max and I are going to set up our own pupusa stand. That's right. We'll be selling pupusas and and uh, living the life, baby. You know, I, I may come and uh, I'll bring my brothers and we'll do a little surfing. But the only problem is that Joe's not very athletic. So it might be <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we gave you a congratulations at the beginning of the show. We can't let you have all the fun. You're you're just trying to make up for the joke I made before we went on air. What was that? that? Was a good oh, one. Sports. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, yeah, you well, I, said, I asked you about. He the said Super the same. You heard his response. He said the St. Louis Rams are going to win this. No, Super I did not <laughs> say that. I did not say that. Oh not say no! That. But, I will, but I will say, I, I will say that uh, we, we were with some people from St. Louis one time, and the room got kind of like quiet, and then all of a sudden, John out of nowhere just hits him with the. So you guys mad that the Rams moved? Asked <laughs> <laughs> they were still Rams fans. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good question. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you guys so much for uh, for tuning in. Max, Stacy, thank you guys for uh, for coming here. I know that uh, you got a bunch of different stuff you could be doing with your time. Joe, John, you guys got any uh, any other questions? No, thanks for coming on, guys. No, no comments. It. Appreciate John, you, you going to tell Max what you tell everyone to do? Oh, pay off your credit card. <laughs> don't, follow, don't follow Max on Twitter if you don't already. <laughs> Definitely, good <Yeah>. advice. <laughs> Stacy as well. Definitely. Make sure you like the video. Make sure you subscribe to the channel. We'll see you guys tomorrow. Bye.